Well, good morning, everyone, and thank you so much for joining us today, and I thank those uh, that we're live streaming with. Uh, this is, uh, I guess, our introduction to the Hudson Food Policy Center. Previously, we had focused on obesity alone, and we broadened our mandate. So we have uh, chosen to launch that with the study uh, which is groundbreaking. Uh, we've been involved in studies where we've proven the first business case uh, demonstrating that there are opportunities for industry in this better for you, healthier product arena. And what we're taking on now today is to share with you some findings of our study. We're actually taking a viewpoint from a consumer marketer's perspective looking at the obesity crisis and using uh, consumer segmentation uh, to apply to that. And joining us today are two outstanding guests and panelists with us. Uh, Tracy Massey here to my left. Uh, Tracy is the regional president of the Americas for Mars Wrigley Confectionery Company. Uh, previously, Tracy was president of uh, Mars Chocolate, North America, so she knows how to market all these yummy products. Uh, Tracy is, is here because she is, uh, has been a major force along with the National Confectioners Association CEO, John Downs, where uh, in working in tandem with the Partnership for a Healthy America, stepped up from an industry perspective to make some serious commitments about selling smaller portions. And within five years, the commitment is uh, to sell products that are 200 calories or less. Uh, more than 50% of their items will be that. And that's a heavy lift, but it demonstrates leadership in a sector um, that is in an important arena as it relates particularly uh, into health. So welcome and thank you. Uh, my second guest is Dr. Bill Dietz. Um, Dr. Dietz is the director of the Sumner M. Redstone Global Center for Prevention and Wellness at the Milken Institute uh, School of Public Health at George Washington University. That's the longest title I've ever had to remember. <laughs> Bill, Bill is an icon in the, uh, the fight to address uh, the obesity crisis. Uh, Bill was previously director at the CDC of their nutrition, uh, physical health, and obesity activities. He's also been inducted into the Institute of Medicine at the uh, um, Institute of Medicine. So again, we have two folks from both ends of the spectrum, if you would, uh, luminaries in their own areas, public health and also industry to help us with our conversation today. And the way we'll run our session today is I'm gonna share some of our key findings with you via PowerPoint, and then we'll have a panel discussion on a couple of key topics. And then what we'd like to do is open it up to you, our audience, for questions so that we can cover this topic pretty comprehensively. So with that, what we're doing today is talk about how we fight obesity by bringing in consumer marketing approaches. So let's say we're all the brand managers for how to solve this problem. And that's the approach that we'll bring. I mean, um, my background is besides directing the Food Policy Center here at uh, Hudson, I also come out of industry. So we're trying to marry the two approaches where we're dealing with a very serious public health problem and at the same time, 
uh, we need to do things that also work for corporations so that they have motivated, they're motivated to make change. So again, just top lining, obesity is a serious problem. I mean, you now have five states for obesity levels are over 35%. You have 25 where the rate is over 30%. So it's serious, it's very serious. And you don't see any states any longer below 20%. Uh, the traditional approaches taken uh, by regulators and public health typically have focused on restricting uh, marketing practices or consumer education or other regulations, but pretty much the population at large. And bottom line is there are some limitations to this. First of all, it's, it's kind of a one-size-fits-all approach. So what happens is, unlike, let's say, from a segment segmented view, you don't necessarily are able to nail down and find out what specifically can motivate and address particular segment needs. Uh, and oftentimes there's unintended consequences. And bottom line is what we're trying to do is shift long-term behavior. And oftentimes that doesn't work. So enter segmentation. When we say segmentation, we mean basically identifying subgroups that behave differently, either in their attitudes or their mindsets or in the kinds of products they purchase. And again, this kind of look is typically taken by industry. In some example, just take an automobile industry where you can take a broad stroke look at it and say, all right, I just buy on price and gas mileage, or you can, what they typically do now is, well, you know, there's a luxury segment, there's a performance segment, there's styling segment, et cetera, and they have their own business opportunities. So again, what we're trying to do is take this kind of thinking to this particular problem. So what we're doing today for the first time in lieu of, let's say, a more standard, let's look at demographics, or let's only look at, let's say, low-income populations, etc. We're going to take a more comprehensive look. We're going to look at three key bubbles, if you would. The first one are attitudes and mindsets. In other words, what are the attitudes by different consumer segments uh, based on body mass index? Okay, so we look at their attitudes towards foods and overall. We want to look at their behaviors, in other words, products that they purchase and also any barriers to change. In other words, are there any kind of deep-seated beliefs that make it difficult, or perhaps even in the demographics that also make it challenging to change? And we then want to take that as an input to help us craft more effective um, policy and program insights. So our segmentation approach that you'll see today is we, we have a four-segmentation model. We're going to be comparing the healthy weight cohort with those having obesity. That's one area we'll be comparing. And also, we're going to tease apart uh, this overweight segment into two groups, one that's uh, somewhat or moderately overweight and those that are mostly overweight, uh, because there's some potential transition dynamics that we want to see to follow things. And you can see the BMI classifications. This is part of the CDC and the National Institutes of Health. And this is our sample total. We, we are not talking about underweight populations. We do have data on them, but oftentimes not statistically significant. And we do have a 2,000 person sample here, which we're calling our general population. So when you see our comparisons using indexes, uh, it's compared to the general population. 
the survey was performed by the National um, Natural Marketing Institute, NMI. They've conducted over 50,000 surveys. We've used them in the past. They've helped us with a lot of analysis. They've also worked uh, with us here, like with the Confection Association and the uh, convenience store group to do studies. And uh, anytime we say something is statistically significant today, it's at the 95% confidence level. And the focus will be on indulgent products today. So we're talking, we're talking about all the goody stuff. You know, we're talking about sodas and candies, all the things you really wanted in your lunch pack today. Um, but we feel it's important to go into detail for these uh, these were chosen for our first analysis because these are areas that oftentimes are under fire in this arena. And uh, we wanted to find out, well, you know, how directly associated to the issues are they and what roles perhaps they should play. So let me get into uh, a summary of our insights. And we'll show you a combination of, again, straight percentages and the indexes. And again, just to be clear on indexes, an index of 100 is kind of the average for what all our 2,000 people are saying. So anything above 100 with a box around is going to be statistically significant. And we're going to be showing some huge differences today. Uh, the first one, as we look at our uh, obesity segment, um, the attitudes we find oftentimes aren't aligned with healthier eating. You know, you get things like, I know I should be eating healthier, but I don't. And you can see, for instance, the healthy weight cohort is down to 41%, whereas the obesity segment, those who have obesity, are saying 62% uh, agreement with that particular question. And when we break it down a little further into our indices, you can see that uh, with these questions, you know, it's difficult to follow a healthier eating plan or it's not convenient. Those index very high for those who have obesity compared to our normal weight, whereas at the very bottom, you can see that the normal weight populations are saying, hey, consuming healthy, nutritious, better for you products are important. All right, so you see this dichotomy. There's, there's a different mindset and attitudes that are being brought to healthier eating. Um, we also learned that uh, taste and value or value for the money are a lot more important for the obesity cohort. And again, when we break this down, you can see that our healthy weight crowd is willing to act, this is the first time we're seeing this, uh, healthy weight cohort is actually willing to give up both taste and value for the money for health. Um, being involved in consumer marketing for 40 years now, it's always been taste, 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 and everything else. Well, this is the first time we're seeing that. And as you see with that 135 index under the obesity cohort, um, there is a concern that they're saying that healthy food doesn't taste good. So we're starting to pick up a barrier here. This is the perception that it doesn't taste good, but it's also uh, become endemic. We also find that among the top three attributes that are most important, only one third in the obesity cohort rate health and nutrition as the top three. And you can see here that things like taste, value, uh, price, and convenience uh, rate very strongly. And you can see that just the opposite, health and nutrition, is, is not making the cut here. So you have, uh, an, if you would, an intrinsic barrier to perhaps making some change here. Whereas our healthy weight crowd, they're the only ones you see where statistically they're showing 
uh, proclivity more towards health and wellness, as we stated earlier. Uh, we also see some different mindsets. Um, again, we, we peppered our study with some, uh, I don't want to call them Myers-Briggs type questions, but in that arena, just to try to get inside. All right, what, what, we're trying to get to motivation here. It's not enough just to know the facts or what somebody's income level or education level is. We're trying to really understand some of the things that are driving. So we found, for instance, that you know, I have cravings for healthy food and I just give up. That's, that's a response that was very high among the obesity cohort. And when you look at some of these other questions, like, you know, I choose foods based on, you know, how they feel emotionally. That's a directional finding, not statistically significant at 95%. But also, you know, I tend to choose more impulsively or I live for today, not necessarily tomorrow. So this gives us insights as to how we might consider structuring programs or initiatives to help address this particular matter. Uh, label reading. The Healthy Weight Cohort clearly is not only reading labels at a higher clip, but also selecting their products when they read uh, nutritional information on the front of the panel or the back of the panel, or even reading the nutritional label. So what it suggests, again, is, uh, I mean, I think even you know, industry will agree that providing information is important for transparency for their products, but we have to then step back on this and say, labeling can just take us so far as a, a solution by itself to this particular problem. So again, makes sense to do it, but we have to be careful about presuming that it'll take us all the way. This is a very interesting one. We then looked at our indulgent products and we can see very clearly that our obesity cohort does have higher purchase rates for the soft drink products, um, salty snacks, uh, sweet baked goods. Uh, Twinkies didn't make the cut here. Uh, and interestingly, very consistent with a study we did uh, conducted two years ago, we found that um, not a statistically difference in consumption of chocolate and non-chocolate candy. Um, everyone likes this across the board, even our hardcore health crowd. Uh, I guess that it gets an exemption. But this is very important information because what, what we're seeing here is that there is overconsumption of these product categories. We don't have causation, but there's no doubt that the obesity cohort is definitely consuming more and more of these products with the exception of candy. Sugar, everyone, you know, sugar is now public health enemy number one, all right? But who cares about sugar, all right? The ones who care about sugar, again, are our healthy weight cohort, all right? They'll avoid, you know, many of them are avoiding all sweeteners. And when you look all the way across that at that 74.7 number, it's like, uh-uh, no, not doing it with the obesity segment. Uh, you know, whether it's looking for natural sweeteners or not consuming more high fructose corn syrup or uh, looking for the, you know, no sugars added. Again, the normal or healthy weight cohort is uh, really focused and drilled down on this, whereas uh, those who have obesity, uh, it's not a priority or it's not high enough relative to the other cohorts. Um, and then when we look at exercise, it's not only that um, those who have obesity in the obese cohort, obesity cohort, don't like to exercise, but also they don't believe in it. Um, 
second one, I hate to exercise. Well, if you don't exercise, I hate to exercise. But also, you don't see a high index against the question, exercise is important for health. Clearly, our healthy weight and even those who are somewhat overweight get that message, but then that message falls off. So we clearly have an op a gap, but an opportunity to help in the communications here because there's something that is um, inconsistent across those two uh, arenas. However, we did find out that expense is an issue for those um, in the obesity cohort. Uh, not only that, but also those mostly overweight. And, and this is pretty much uh, echoed by the demographics. And again, just, just to reiterate, we do have the demographics here, but the focus is more on the attitudes and products purchased. Those are the cohorts we're looking at the data. And it's clear that those um, who are more of the healthy weight um, you know, have higher income, they have higher levels of education compared to the uh, obesity cohort, which has lower, uh, lower income levels, um, also more of them on the SNAP program, uh, food stamp program. Uh, you see more college uh, graduates and also uh, does skew a little younger to healthy weight compared to more Gen X and baby boomers in the obesity cohort. Now, a couple of opportunities that we found here um, number one, um, all, all groups seem to be looking for better for you, healthier, on-the-go options. So we think that's a huge opportunity for industry to capitalize on. Uh, at the same time, uh, especially to this question, it's unlikely I'll give up on my soda and snacks, but I'd sure like to see it in smaller portions. That's a biggie, especially for the obesity cohort. That suggests that there's a huge opportunity for industry to step up and help in this area. Uh, they're waiting for help. And then when we look at the restaurant sector, we did have specific questions in that sector. Uh, we found, for instance, looking across all respondents, they want healthier options, they want smaller portions, and oh, by the way, that third thing, that 36%, I checked the calorie content, well, we know it's checking the calorie content. Uh, it's those who, uh, we found that among the healthy weight cohort, you know, there's this desire for lots of information. We're not providing it in, in full detail here, but you know, things like non-GMO and gluten-free, just go down the list. It's a high awareness of those issues and a high interest in purchasing products for that that you don't see among um, those in the obesity cohort. And when you, you look at some of the characteristics or uh, behaviors that these people reflect in a restaurant environment, um, especially in the obesity cohort, they're saying that they like to indulge and they like to splurge and, and maybe I'm not eating so healthy. So there, there's some help that the industry can provide in this particular arena. So when you just recap what's going on with our segments, um, you know, the, obese, the obesity cohort is definitely behaving and attitudinally different and choosing products, indulgent products differently than the healthy weight cohort. And interestingly, as we look at our, our transition uh, segments among the over overweight, the mostly overweight starting to look very much like the obesity cohort, whereas the somewhat or slightly overweight still demonstrate a lot of characteristics among the healthy weight. So it suggests that there's more you know, receptiveness to change among that cohort. So if you 
encapsulate the findings, you know, the, the healthy weight crowd, they're the, they're the health and wellness stars, uh, the overweight one, the uh, somewhat overweight, they get it. They're, they're understanding it, but they need some help. And then as we get to the mostly overweight, we're kind of at the tipping point here based on the responses we're getting. And finally, for, with the obesity cohort, there, there's a lot of challenge here, and that's where we're going to make suggestions as to how we might particularly make some uh, assistance to this particular cohort. So what are the implications? We have four implications. Number one, traditional health messaging to both the obesity cohort and the mostly um, overweight one is not really an effective way to go. Uh, particularly given that their expressed attitudes, mindsets, the way they're purchasing are not consistent with a one-size-fits-all kind of message. Again, our healthy weight crowd gets it. They want it. They want more information. I mean, they, this crowd would love a, a nutritional label that goes all the way down to the floor. All right, that is the desire. But it's not the same sentiment at the other end of the spectrum. Um, we need to remove calories from indulgent products, particularly um, on the beverage side and also the snack side and the sweet baked goods side. Um, they really do contribute to overconsumption. And the third point is that, you know, we're going to talk about stealth. In many cases, you know, with those who practice it and embraced it as part of their lifestyle, that's an informational issue, okay? Just providing consistent information validated studies, et cetera, so that these people will continue making their informed choices. When we look at the mostly overweight and the obesity cohort, it's a different mindset there. And we have to find ways to make improvements, but do it in a way that doesn't violate, for instance, the taste demand. There's a very strong taste demand there. And once you start talking about this is healthier, better for you, low calorie, it starts uh, toggling with the perception that products will taste good and you don't make, you don't have an effective approach there. And finally, just, just the point about the, the somewhat overbeat, oh, excuse me, overweight segment, they kind of get it. They just need some help in helping them with not only education, but also some combination with stealth. So when you look at stealth, you can see that looking at the, the graph here, we have uh, low risk to high risk in terms of BDI and how you approach it. Again, we're saying for the healthy weight cohort, you know, education and info is the way to go. As we look at the other end, where we look at the obesity cohort and the mostly overweight cohort, more stealth approaches where you get an assist from industry is important there. And then our slightly or somewhat overweight crowd needs a little bit of both. All right, so that's kind of the dynamic for the game plan. So let's, we have three calls for action here before we get to our panel discussion. Number one is we are calling on our, our cohorts, speaking of cohorts and companions and colleagues in industry, particularly in the snacks and the sweet baked goods sections and the restaurant sector uh, to step up, step up and make a commitment to lower calories, very important and it's been done. Healthy Weight Commitment Foundation, uh, 16 packaged goods companies a few years ago made a commitment to pull calories out, and they pulled six and a half trillion calories out of the food supply. 
confections industry last year working in tandem with Partnership for a Healthier America. Uh, made a commitment, again, to sell half their items uh, at 200 calories or less within five years, a big lift. Convenience stores are doing their part. A number of convenience store chains have stepped up to sell healthier products and also participate in the uh, drink-up campaign where there's more aggressive action to sell more bottled water. Uh, soft drinks, again, have stepped up, and they're made, they've made a pledge to take 20% more. Uh, calories out of their products. Uh, what I find always interesting, and it's not because I'm a former soft drink guy, I'm not biased, but um, actually in our calculations for the Healthy Weight Commitment Cal uh, Foundation, uh, most of those calories were removed by the, the soda companies, and now they're on the hook, if you would, for another 20%. So uh, they will have contributed, should they achieve this goal, to a significant reduction of calories in the food supply. But we still have two sectors over here that have been kind of on the, on the sidelines, and we need them to step up. You know, I think most know that I look for win-wins. You know, it has to work for business in terms of their uh, business models and profitability, and, and they have to grow their sales. But at the same time, we have a serious public health problem that needs to be addressed, that industry can take their part. And my feeling is that these two sectors based on the behaviors and the purchase patterns we've seen here today can step up and make a commitment to reduce significantly reduce calories. In contrast to that, the public health community has done quite a bit of work, a lot of good work on this. Uh, we're making a strong suggestion for them to reassess how they approach dealing with this particular issue and to break it down into segments so that what is proposed, whether it's labeling or considerations, you know, should we even tax? What about what do we do for the SNAP program and the food stamp program? You know, what happens segment by segment so we really get a handle on what would move the needle on each one of these groups so that we can be more pinpoint in our effectiveness with our policies that move forward. And then finally, this is just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, we chose indulgent products because they're kind of on the firing line right now. But you really need to get a handle on everything these people consume across all sectors. And we need to look at restaurant items so that we can get a full picture of what everyone's attitudes are, what they're purchasing, what they're consuming. And now we can be smart in the terms of being very precise in the policy directions that we looked at. And this will also help with our messaging once we know that. because. Uh, as many of the food companies learn, you can't just have one message that you expect every single consumer to understand. You have to have different messages that go to different consumers. So in this case, our consumers are people that uh, impact their eating uh, habits. So that's basically a top line on our findings. We have a report here. If you haven't picked it up, it's out on the table outside. And what I'd like to do now is have a, a panel discussion for about 20 minutes or 25 minutes and then open it up for all your questions. And I am going to start with Bill, because Bill has been involved in this issue. Uh, Bill says he's forgotten how long he's been involved in all this. But I choose not to remember. <laughs> Bill is choosing not to remember how long he spent on this. but. Uh, it's clear that um, 
you know, at some point, uh, obesity rates look like they were plateauing. Uh, it looks like now maybe there's some upticks. But the point is that as you look at this information, and, and I guess I just wanted to get some insights for the audience from your perspective as to what you see are the factors that seem to be contributing to continuing high obesity rates. And, and perhaps just being candid, maybe some of your frustrations <laughs> in dealing with it. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm a little uncertain right now as to where we are uh, with the obesity epidemic in children and adolescents. Um, I was very optimistic until the last round of NHANES, which showed a, an uptick uh, in two to five-year-olds that seems to be in excess of what um, the, the normal variation would be. Um, there's also um, a, a more modest uptick among six to 11-year-olds who have been plateaued since 2003, 2004. Um, but this cohort, the one that you're focusing on, is uh, deeply troubling because both the prevalence of obesity and severe obesity is continuing to increase in um, adults. And one of our most recent concerns has been the onset of obesity in 20 to 39-year-olds. That seems to be a, a high-risk period for not only weight gain, but excessive weight gain. About 23% of women and about 12% of men gain 20 kilos, 44 pounds or more during that period. So that period may be uh, a period of uh, rapid onset. And in that regard, the, um, you were mentioning earlier that <clears throat> the healthy weight seems to have, uh, the people in the healthy weight category seem to be younger, millennials. And um, that makes me a little optimistic uh, because of the positive nature of their behaviors. But I think one of the things that um, I wanted to speak to, which your data um, uh, suggest is, I think we have to be careful um, not to interpret these data as an indication that this is the personal responsibility. These choices are the personal responsibility of those people with obesity. Um, there are a lot of things we don't know about that group. Um, we don't know the extent to which um, their environmental circumstances drive those behaviors. Uh, with respect to the SNAP benefits or the SNAP uh, responses, uh, SNAP is a feast or famine kind of um, uh, benefit. It's good at the beginning of the month, and uh, there's no food left at the end of the month. So is, are some of these choices determined by now we can have these things that we've been missing because we've been uh, so short of, of food at the end? The other thing that's interesting is, and I, I don't have an answer to this, but um, these are cross-sectional data, so this is a point in time. To what extent did these behaviors drive obesity, or are they a consequence of obesity? Do they say something about the, the neuro, neurologic um, or neurochemical pathways that uh, preference uh, foods? Well, I mean, we know that people with obesity are more susceptible to advertising. Uh, we know that, these, uh, that, that companies rely on that and, and uh, you know, promote particularly uh, these, uh, the, the kinds of high uh, caloric density foods. Coming back to SNAP, we know also that uh, companies um, really position the products like soda very prominently at the beginning of the month and not so much at the end of the month. So I, I would just caution us not to interpret the, the de these differential choices uh, or attitudes by obese people as reflecting uh, their personal responsibility. And I think that's the pushback that you're going to get from these data, that, that people are going to say, this is up to them. They could uh, make other choices. This is not up to the restaurant association, not up to the snack industry, 
uh, to turn this around. Yeah, and I think it's very clear um, from our perspective here that it's industry has to do its part, public health community and regulators have to do their part. I don't view the, I, actually any recommendation we have quite frankly, focuses on those two sectors rather than, you know, we don't attribute blame to industry or blame to consumers or blame to our regulators or blame to public health community. We have a problem. We're looking for solutions at this point. And I think that's probably the next level we have to think about moving to. We're here now at this point in time. The people who can do something are industry and public health slash regulators. So what can we do since we can make the biggest impact in this arena? And that's where I think this goes. And I, and I think um, I'm very clear, and, and I want, I want, I'm going to ask Tracy to start talking about Mars's commitments, but I think that's a very direct way that can help us in this particular arena where we can bluntly pull calories off the street. I mean, if you look at all USDA data, going back to 1970. I mean, we're consuming someplace in the range of maybe 400 extra calories per day, give or take, per person. And when you look at that number, one of the challenges, recognizing that some calories are different than others, but nevertheless, that to get calories off the street is something A, companies can do, B, they can make big impact, and C, we've proven that companies um, can grow by more aggressively selling products that are better for you, lower calorie type versions. So you have a potential, you know, we're at an interesting um, um, confluence here where actually it could be a win for industry, but also a win for the consumer. So that is the spirit for what we look at it. And, and I think, you know, we just have to, we're, we're kind of, and that's why I asked a little bit where perhaps some frustration might be. You know, we're kind of at this point where so much work's been put into this and we're seeing that it may not be quickly turning the other way that we'd like it to go. It may be continuing on its path. So what are the kinds of disconnects that we need to look at right now to try to affect some change? And I think one of those disconnects is, is getting industry to step up and make commitments. Um, and, and Tracy, you were um, one of the leaders in last year's commitment for the confection industry to make a commitment. And I, I was curious to hear from you as to uh, why you got involved, why you took your leadership role, and perhaps your point of view, and also Mars' uh, philosophy on that. Yeah, I mean, we, we, uh, I'm lucky. I work for, work for nearly 30 years for a company that's privately held, family owned, and can take a long-term view. Um, and we firmly believe that it's industry's responsibility to step up um, and do the right thing, whether that be in sustainability and climate change or whether it be in health and wellness. So, um, you know, we've made many um, commitments over the years. The most recent one um, with Partnership for a Healthy America, it's really important. You cannot change. I mean, we are the largest confectionery company in the world, um, but you can't change things on your own. You can try, but you have to take industry with you. It takes all of the players in industry to step up and do things together, which is why the partnership with Healthy America was so important, um, because other big companies stepped up together with the association to make the commitment. So Nestle, Lint, Ferrero, Ferrara, um, and us all stepped up together and said, together we will make a change. And it's the only way you can make a change. Those commitments were, you've talked about some of them, but to educate consumers. Our products are treats. 
Consumers like to indulge themselves, they like to treat themselves, and they're going to continue to do that. So our responsibility is to help them do that in the best way. Put calories right on the front of the pack. That was one of the commitments the companies made. We did that nearly 10 years ago. But it's important that everybody does the same thing. You, when you see consumers shop our products, they don't turn the package over and look at the label. They know they're buying a treat. They know there's sugar in it. They're making a choice to treat themselves. So how do we help them do that as part of a balanced lifestyle? Put the calories right on the front, because they're not going to look at it at the back. Um, the other commitment was to make 50% uh, of our products below 200 calories. Well, a number of years ago, we were the first to commit to make all of our single-serve products under 250. 200 is the next um, piece. All of our recent launches have been under 200, um, and we're looking at bringing in 100-calorie products. We've, we've Actually, right now, we have 10 in the marketplace. We started with four. We've now got 10. So how do you give consumers choice? If you're going to treat yourself, choose maybe a lower-calorie option. You're not going to give up taste and you're not going to give up quality. But get that taste and quality at potentially a lower calorie portion. And then the last piece of the commitment with the Partnership for Healthy America was to educate consumers. So along with the Confectioner Association, how do you educate consumers on the role of a treat and not to overindulge? So there are many things that we can do there, but it's really, really important to work with an outside company to be measured by an independent third party because that's the way you make sure that industry lives up to its commitments. Um, I think there's way more we can do. Hank, we talk about this all the time, and industry continuing to move um, along, that, along that trajectory. How do you help consumers understand what they should do with your products? So we were the first to remove king-size products globally um, and move to sharing size nomenclature to actually have those products that are over, you know, if they're single serve, if they're over 250, they have to be portionable. They have to be resealable. Um, and to really just demonstrate on the package, this is for sharing. You can't make them share it, <laughs> but you can try and help them say, this is for sharing. Share with a friend or eat one part, reseal the package, and eat the rest later. Um, so the more we can do to help, especially when you're in an industry where consumers will continue to treat themselves, that's not going to go away. It's a basic consumer need that is not going to go away. So let's help them do it in the best way possible and maintain a healthy lifestyle within that treat. So that's sort of our position. Yeah. Well, Bill, you know, you've heard what the confection sector is doing. What, what's your thought about what industry can or should be doing in your point of view? Well, so I was amused, <clears throat> excuse me, I was amused by um, your use of the term indulgent. And uh, if you look at this list of so-called indulgent products, Diet soda, regular soda, packaged pastries, goods, cookies, potato chips, packaged ice cream, non-chocolate candy, chocolate candy. Most of these are common, not indulgent. I mean, indulgent says to me they're something that's intermittently consumed. These are regular parts of the diet. I think the bigger challenge uh, is, is how, to, how to shift uh, back to where we were when these were truly indulgent products. And, and Hank, I know uh, you and I are of an age when... Uh, a soft drink was a real treat um, when we were growing up. That wasn't something that we expected on a daily basis or got at a restaurant. So how do we frame this conversation in, in a different way and following the, the lead of the uh, confection in, in which you're clearly identifying this as a truly indulgent product, not a uh, product that, uh, that's consumed on a regular basis? 
you have any thoughts for other industry sectors in particular? I think, I think you're right to target the snack industry. And, and one, of the, one of the other things that's at play in some, in some parts uh, of um, the food industry these days is this move towards smaller portion sizes. Um, and I think that um, we know that, that the, more, the larger the portion, the more likely a person is to overconsume that, that uh, product. Um, but um, lowering the portion uh, without changing the caloric density isn't a win. People eat uh, the weight, weights of food or volumes of food. They don't eat, um, they don't eat calories. So part of the trick for, for industry, uh, and particularly the snack industry, is how do you provide the same volume of food at a lower caloric density? And, and part of the problem is that you do that by adding water, for example. Well, that increases the likelihood that those products will go bad. So what are the other strategies that you can use to uh, reformulate a product so it's the same volume but a lower caloric density? And maybe you've thought about that. Um, I hope not for your Dove ice cream bars. <laughs> yeah, there's certain sacred cows here that we don't mess with. <laughs> don't mess with. But, but that actually, portion control, I know, is central to your strategy. You know, I was going to ask you, as, as you made your commitment now over five years, now it's like, okay, what do we have to do to get there? And it, it's a big challenge. So I just, uh, portion control, I'm sure, is one. But perhaps you can elaborate on the kinds of things you're thinking of doing to achieve that commitment. Yeah, I mean, it's a challenge and it's expensive. We've committed over $200 billion already to what we have done. Um, and it's going to, it's something we're going to need to continue to do. If I think about, um, you know, our biggest launch ever, and in fact, the biggest launch in the confection industry last year was M&M's Caramel, and that's below 200. Um, I didn't add water to it. Um, but it <laughs> I don't but think it, you can, right? <laughs> but it's, it's hard. Mm. It's hard to make good tasting things at lower calories, but it's critically important um, to do that and to continue to push that envelope. Our, our recent brand launch, Maltesers, again, the single pack is under 200 calories. Um, big is the 100 calorie. Um, and again, you, you can't make people, but you can at least work with retailers to try and say, provide options so that you can still have the great taste because what's clear is people will not give up taste. They will not give up quality and they will not give up taste. We, uh, one of the ones we, I like to use, it. we did a study where we gave people bags of M&Ms, two sets of M&Ms, and told them one was lower in sugar and calories. And they were exactly the same product, no difference. So we sort of didn't quite tell the truth. They told us the one lower in sugar tasted worse. And they did it. They tasted exactly the same. So part of it is stealth. Honestly, as you do this, you don't tell people, hey, I've reduced the sugar. You know, we have big, um, a lot of research, and I spend a lot of money on reducing fat, re reducing saturated fat, reducing calories. But you can't tell people, hey, now lower in sugar, even if it is, because they think it tastes worse. So there is a lot of stealth in there um, to be able to just do the right thing um, and help consumers to, to manage their diet, but you know, saying this is now lower doesn't really work. Um, or healthier. Or healthier. Yeah, if you say it's healthier, they, they don't want it. Um, so it, it's really, really important to, to reduce, reduce the size. So, I mean, just this year, um, our new M&M's Flavor Vote, three varieties under 200 calories. 100 calories is really big. We've, like I said, we've extended that from four to 10. Um, you know, as, as we launch new products, whether it be M&M white chocolate peanut, we just, we're trying to bring it in. It's, it's, it is a bit more stealth because 
you, you know, it's harder to do it with the things you've currently got out there, but um, it, it's, it's just, it's really, really important. Yeah, I think to Bill's comment, you know, as we, as we try to figure out the best pathway to pursue, one thing is if you have a product that kind of is what it is, and that's the expectation of a consumer, the more you migrate away from that, the more challenging is for the company. So it's almost as if we have two sets of pathways to pursue. One is just absolutely reducing calories and at the same time address the, let's call it the nutrient density, if that could be worked in. There are certain product categories that we've seen from other research that we've conducted. So when you take a product like yogurt, you can talk all day long about how healthy it is. You can add omega-3s to it. You could add kale into it. It'll be fine for that particular product. Well, maybe not. You, you cringed on that one. Maybe we have some sweet in there. In there. But the point is, you could, it has a healthy halo attached to it. So you can talk freely about how healthy and good tasting a product like that is. The challenge for, to our definition of, of more indulgent products is that uh, it definitely runs against the perception of how the product tastes, and we know that's the biggest barrier we're dealing with. So I think that's a challenge for industry. I know one of the things as we're talking about sugar, you know, sweeteners are a, a hot button. Uh, again, you know, um, concerns about artificial sweeteners, and I know many of the major companies are looking at you know, next generation beyond stevia, which is a nat natural sweetener. Uh, that's the holy grail to them. I mean, if they had it tomorrow, it'd be in all their products. I don't know if there's any work that you've seen or you think that's a potential good solution as you look for more natural sweeteners to offer these kind of products that naturally bring down the calories. They are what they are, but they're, they're a better version. And it seems to me that those could go a long way to making a huge difference. Well, the, the literature on artificial sweeteners, particularly in soda, is mixed. Um, there, there are um, some studies which show that there is no difference in weight gain in people who are consuming diet sodas versus not. And uh, part of that, I mean, I'm, that, that's paradoxical, and, and it probably has more to do with what you eat in association with a diet soda. Mm. But the other curious thing about diet sodas is that and, and non-nutritive sweeteners is that they light up the same pathways as sugar in the brain. Mm -hmm. um, so there may be some kind of uh, neurocognitive process that at, at play uh, as well. Um, the other thing, and you can't let a conference these days go by without talking about the microbiome. Um, so um, there is some work going on um, at, at GW on um, the cha potential changes in the microbiome or differences in the microbiome associated with people consuming non-nutritive sweeteners and those who do not. But that's, uh, that's really an open uh, issue for research. Okay. I wanted to ask one final question for Bill uh, before we go to the audience questions. Is there anything, what do you think the public health community can do differently? at this juncture, again, given that it, it yeah. still remains a challenge? Well, the, the places where we've seen success, and, and there are some at the community level, are those which have employed a multi-dimensional uh, intervention. Um, that we can't think that all we need to do is um, put an excise tax on soda and everything will be fine. Uh, or um, we build walking trails in a community and that's gonna increase physical activity. That, um, there have now been um, probably 
well, we know we know that there have been about 20 communities in um, about seven states now that have, have uh, reported clear declines in the prevalence of obesity in children. I'm not aware of any that have uh, reported declines in the prevalence of obesity in adults. But those places that have uh, reported declines in children and adolescents have been multifactorial, multidimensional, cross-sector. Uh, and that's, for the, from the public health community, that's uh, where we need to go. Um, with respect to, the, to uh, at the, the national level, I don't think we're going to see changes at the national level. Uh, I, don't, uh, I think that, like we saw with tobacco, the changes are going to begin locally and spread. Uh, and I think that's the stage that we're in. Uh, furthermore, I think that many of the um, interventions that people have tried are not likely to have a very significant impact on, on caloric balance. Now, how that relates to these data, I'm a little less certain because um, we were seeing in the population declines in the last decade in soda consumption, in uh, fast food consumption, in pizza consumption, and there's some indication that those have begun to shift around uh, and go the other way. Are there any things, Tracy, that, that you are seeing in industry or you think industry can be doing more of? I, I, I think industry needs to step up and do more. Um, it's a constant, I mean, the consumer, we say the consumer's our boss. Yeah, it's one of our five principles, quality. Um, and the consumer will continue to change. We've been around for 100 years because we've kept up with consumer trends and consumer changes. And industry needs to continue to do that. And it needs to take responsibility. Um, and I would really encourage all industry uh, to step up. But like I said, it, it can't be one or two companies. Uh, so one of the things we're doing with the National Confectioners Association is trying to get more confectionery companies to step up and commit and do the right thing. So how do we encourage more companies within our industry and how do we encourage other industries to, to, to step up and make the commitments and work with people like Partnership for a Healthy America? Because that's, you know, that's, it, you, we're experts in our field. They're experts in their field, um, and they can really help challenge us and help us with how we can do more, um, because that's what they do and that's what they're good at. So I, I just would continue to encourage everybody um, to step up and do more, and we will continue to do that. Um, it's funny because um, I often get asked the question when the World Health, and Health Organization came out with their uh, findings that you should restrict sugar to 10% to of the diet, and we were the first manufacturer to come out in support of that and sugar labeling. And people were like, well, why, why would a confectionery company be the first ones to step up and support it? But you know what? Because it's important, and it's our responsibility. And we will continue to do that. And I would just encourage, um, there's many, many like-minded companies out there like us that are, that are doing similar things. I just would encourage all of industry um, to do the right thing and, and help. All right, thank you. Thank you both. I want to open it up to questions. I mean, we can go on for a long time. We have someone with a microphone that could bring the mic around. And kindly identify yourself and who you're directing your question to. Yes, so my name is Bill Glack. And for Dr. Dietz, you mentioned, I think you mentioned ages two to five, there's a concern over obesity. I, I was wondering what you could attribute that to. <laughs> um. It's, it's, hard, it's hard to know. Uh, I don't think we have um, a decent data that um, identifies the behaviors of those children who um, develop obesity at that age. I think we have some, we can point to some practices that are likely to lead to obesity in, in um, young children, uh, such as um, formula feeding rather than breastfeeding. Um, we know that formula-fed infants also 
are more likely to have early introduction of solids and that those choices of solids are more, more likely to be of higher caloric density, uh, like sweets. And, uh, but, but your question is a good one, and I think that I mean, I've been involved in this um, feeding infants and toddlers study, uh, which has looked at, a, at about 2,000 children uh, aged uh, zero, to, zero to four. Our cohort was zero to two. Um, early introduction of juice is another, and, and continued uh, um, provision of juice is another. And some, a, a fair number of, of young children under the age of a year are consuming a fair amount of juice, well in excess of the four ounces um, that were recommended by the American Academy of Pediatrics. Question in the back there. Do we have a mic? Yes. All right, I'll ask my question. David Park, uh, I'm investing in the kind of things that Bill's talking about with Upstream, but my question is for Tracy. Um, so your business generally, I mean, when you walk in the door every day, the message to the troops, and it also comes from your chairman, is it growth? Because if you look at it, your business today, although the common perception is that candy rules the roost, it's not the most profitable sector that you guys have. It's now pet food. I mean, you're 20% of pet food. You just bought $7.7 billion VCA, right? Uh, Nestle is now out of the candy business. You have new competitors that want market share. So I think there's a difference in between the perception because you are in a defensive business, right? Mutar Ken for years was talking about growth, growth, growth. So the packages got smaller and the prices remain the same. That's profit, but ultimately it's a cyclical losing business. CPGs are down. So, you know, the question is, is your message growth? Because if it is not a growth business and you're just hanging on to it, then it's great marketing. But the $200 million is just a cost of doing business. So private or not, you know. <laughs> That's so, yeah, no, it is, and I have a very different point of view. So if you look at the statistics, uh, healthy snacks are growing at the same rate as confectionery. Um, so our business is very, very healthy. Um, we grew in the U.S. three times the market last year. Um, and I think a lot of it is because of the types of products that we are bringing. And we're bringing choice. And we're bringing transparency. So um, our business, the pet care business and the confectionery business is about the same size. Um, and we're growing uh, very nicely and we're very profitable. So I'm, I'm not going to tell you the numbers because I'm a privately held company. I don't, we don't disclose that. But I can tell you we're growing, we're profitable, and we're sizable within the Mars um, business. Um, we're completely committed to treats. Um, and that is you know, that's the, the business that we're in. Um, Nestle have pulled out of the US, but not the world. Um, so Nestle is still a huge competitor for us. Um, the fact that they, they couldn't win in the US doesn't mean to say they're not, you know, they've got a, a sizable business and they're a, they're a big competitor. Um, if I look at, just, if I just look at the industry, I mean, people are investing, you know, requiring um, in this space. You know, Ferrero just acquired Nestle's business. They were acquired Ferrero earlier. So people are investing, they're acquiring, whether it be private equity acquiring or um, companies acquiring. So it's a very healthy sector and it's biased by, like I said before, consumers like to treat themselves. And we're very proud to make the world's best tasting, highest quality treats. But they are treats. They're not meal replacements. They're not snacks. They are treats. And the importance is to educate the consumer on how to treat themselves and not to overindulge. Um, and if you do that, people will continue to treat themselves. So offer them great tasting products at lowest calories. Do whatever you can to make them better without saying they're better. Um, and uh, the business is very, uh, very, very strong. So, yeah, just one thing on on the whole treat nomenclature. I mean, we we've done a lot of research in this arena, and it's very clear to us 
when you compare the confections or let's say the chocolate sector with uh, salty snacks or other kinds of snacking, the, the frequency of purchase is significantly less frequent for these kind of products compared to uh, the snacks or the meal replacements, which are more regular types. So I, I think we have hard numbers on that. It's not part of this report, but I think that's uh, it's interesting. And then the second factor, again, is what we're seeing, just to your earlier point, that it, it's across. We've looked at segments besides our BMI segments. We've looked at um, health and wellness segments, anywhere from what they call well-beings all the way to, I love this descriptor, eat, drink, and be merry. So it speaks for itself. And across all five of those particular segments, we saw that the consumption was pretty consistent with perhaps a skew among the well-beings for more dark chocolate or looking for more alternative kinds of snacks, you know, with nuts and fruits in them in addition to just a straight product. So that's separate discussion, but there's a lot of data behind that. Yes, right up front. Hi, uh, Joyce Frieden from MedPage today. Uh, you've all talked about sort of the limited effect, um, or I guess um, two of you have talked about the limited effect of um, uh, excise taxes on soda, but I'm, I'm wondering about anything else uh, regulators might do, like uh, changing what's allowed in school lunch programs or restricting what can be bought with uh, SNAP money. And well, let me be clear about my comment about uh, excise taxes. Excise taxes, uh, and we now have good data that those do re reduce soda consumption. They alone, they do not have an, a major impact on obesity. I mean, they they have some impact, but not. It's not going to reverse mm -hmm. the epidemic. So, um, the other thing is that I think um, the Obama administration did a terrific job in changing the. Uh, products available in the school lunch and putting uh, constraints on, on their caloric, uh, eliminating trans fat, and, and so on. In fact, the pizza that's served in the lunchroom is the healthiest pizza um, that, <laughs> that is provided. So I think that's, you know, those are, those are steps forward. Uh, I think that, that uh, the Alliance for a Healthier Generation, now almost a decade ago, negotiated with the American Beverage Association to clear sugar drinks out of, out of schools. So I, I think that's less of an issue today than it was uh, five to 10 years ago. Um, I, I worry more about what um, kids are consuming out of school. Um, and the, um, I know in a city like, like DC um, and, and other cities, there are fast food restaurants, there are uh, uh, the availability of corner stores that kids go back and forth uh, to and from school and get sugary snacks, they get uh, the, the savory, salty, savory snacks. I worry much more about those than I do about what's happening in schools, although that doesn't mean we're completely good in schools, um, but I think that's been a, a marked improvement. Yeah, thank you. Yes. <laughs> in the middle. Okay, we can get both. You can go ahead first. Okay, thanks. Um, so today I think we're seeing a lot of these new body image campaigns and these kind of social fat pride movements and kind of claiming that you can be healthy at any size. And I was just wondering, do you guys find research on this, that this is contradicting what you guys are trying to doing, kind of this movement to just be happy with yourself type? Um, I, I think... Um, 
I think that, that the goal is for everybody to be healthy at whatever the weight they are. But I, I, I think one of the um, concerns that I have about the, the, um, the fat acceptance movement is that the adverse effects of obesity are neglected or not recognized. Uh, and, and some of those are, are reversible. Uh, so that if, if somebody is, uh, is, uh, has obesity and is inactive, uh, activity would increase um, glucose tolerance, it would uh, improve lipid levels, it would improve blood pressure. So physical activity is, is uh, one of those drugs which I think will work across the, the, the population at, at any weight. Um, but but I, I don't think we can um, say that obesity is not a health concern, it is. And it's driving rates of cancer, which are increasing and occurring in younger people. It's driving rates of type 2 diabetes, which now affects uh, 10 to 12 percent of the U.S. population and is still rising. Um, and it affects blood pressure, which affects a, a huge number of adults in the United States. All right, thank you. This question right here in the middle. Hi, um, I'm Julia McCarthy. I work for the Center for Science and the Public Interest. And um, I had a question about the stealth uh, changes. I'm wondering, is that on product, just at point of sales? Um, because as our first hire for corporate engagement, one of our big tools is celebrating when companies like yours, Tracy, do good things. And if you're doing them secretly or without publicity, how do we build relationships with you? <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't say secretly, not publicly, because we're very public about our commitments. Uh, you know, we're the first globally to say we wouldn't advertise to children under 12. Um, big public global commitment. You know, like I said, first to take, uh, remove king size and move to sharing size. So we make big public commitments. When I talk about stealth, I mean, consumers don't want to hear it's better for you. So if that, that's my point about stealth. You, you can't say to people, oh, here's a healthy M&M. They won't eat it. <laughs> All you can do is try and make it better. You know, it's, it's always going to have sugar in it. It's, those are our products. So all you can do is to try and help people make better choices, provide them more choice um, so that they can have 100 calorie options, 200 calorie options, things that are, they can still meet this need to treat themselves, but they have an opportunity to do it in a way that they can maintain a healthy lifestyle at the same, same way. So stealth is about n not telling, I mean, we've been reducing saturated fat um, and we've made particular strides in Twix. But I would never say less saturated fat on, on, the, on the label because people would, they, they, it doesn't work. Um, it is a treat. So it's know who you are, do the right things, be very public about your commitment. So, you know, absolutely, I would be, we're very public about committing to the, you know, to what we're going to do. Um, you have to be, and that's the best way to take everybody with you. Um, you know, if you stand up and say, we are going to do this because this is the right thing to do, it, that's how you get other people to come with you. So we will continue to be very public about that. Stealth more in, um, it's, it's a bit like what Hank was saying. It, you, you've, you've just got to do the right thing and help people without saying, hey, by the way, um, you're obese or you're this and you shouldn't do that because they, they don't want to be told what to do. So how do you help them in a way without telling them what to do? Do you, do you know what I mean? Because people just don't react well to being told what to do. Um, my children certainly don't react well. Told, told That's a different do. breed. Yes. <laughs> well, I think we learned something too um, when Campbell's Soup was trying to take sodium out of the soup products, and they, they really they overcooked it. They really took out a significant amount, and they saw their business do a nosedive, and then they actually had to come back and add 
back in more more sodium into their products just to get sales back to a reasonable level. So that's the classic. Also, food companies over the decades have been making tweaks to their products uh, for cost savings reasons, for instance, re regardless of uh, health issues, just because. So there's a lot of tweaking that's constantly go going on just to manage profit margins. So all these things can be done, but it's very difficult to sustain that taste metric uh, that the consumers just overwhelmingly demand, except generally for the people in this room who are willing to give it up. Uh, when we go meet our neighbors, it's, it doesn't hold that way. So it is a challenge. We have to recognize what products are. Uh, I think for Mars, in their case, um, you know, stealth works pretty well when you talk about portion control and you have to deal with uh, quantities that are consumed. I think that, but we need to spread this across other sectors that are not involved in taking proactive steps, which is why I call for the, uh, the snacks and sweet baked goods sectors and the restaurant sectors to step up because others have, so let's do what your peers have. I think that's really the next big step there. I, I think the, the Kraft macaroni and cheese example is a really good example of a stealth intervention where they, yeah. they changed um, salt and I think saturated fat and didn't tell anybody. Uh, but monitored sales, and uh, after three months when sales didn't change, they announced that they had made some changes. Yeah, and also with the artificial uh, colors in yeah. there. They used to have that neon orange, and now it's more natural. Uh, I believe it's all natural colors. And they, you're right, they did the same thing. They didn't tell anybody they were making the change. It just it worked out fine. Let's just move forward. And it's not just product, it's packaging too. Yeah. How can you use packaging to help you, whether it be resealable, yeah, but there's a lot that can be done with packaging. Again, it's not easy, but um, it's important. Yeah. Um, there was another question. Uh, yes, over here. Yeah, so I understand that. Uh, thank you. I understand that. My name is Daria Steigman. I'm a health um, communication strategist. I understand the concept of stealth for food manufacturers and for for and sort of products, but it. At the same time, it's somewhat troubling because when you have sort of this focus on stealth, you're getting away from the focus on nutrition. And as people particularly, and, and we know that nothing so far has worked, right? Because obesity rates are going, have been, are either constant or going up. So how do you both educate to, to prevent the problem at the same time? So because I think you know, this conversation is good, but particularly kids who, you know, when you start educating kids, you know, kids, kids in the generations up or how you get that change long term. Let me let me deal with the issue of education because it's a challenging one. Uh, in market research, we come across the term called the say do gap. In other words, what consumers say versus what they do. And the way you finally get around that gap is to do more in-depth about what we shared today. In other words, really go very deep, not only on attitudes, but get inside the mindsets. And I, I don't like to call them personality-type questions, but you know, things, things that help you make decisions, all right, has nothing to do with food. You know, what's your wiring? What makes you do things? And once you do that, and then you can overlay what they're purchasing, now you have a basis for crafting health messaging that could be more effective because that gap is wide. And in fact, as you go across those segments, the, the gap gets wider as you go. So I think that's, that's a big missing 
elements. So it's not stealth by itself, but it's also using this kind of technique to help drive more effective communications in combination with the stealth work. Okay. The only thing I would add to that is that the conversation, uh, even in schools of nutrition, has been about nutrients rather than foods. And I think a focus on foods rather than nutrients may get us closer to uh, uh, understanding uh, on the part of uh, children and adults. I, I think there's a very valid point because you don't eat a sugar, you don't eat a salt, you eat a product. So I would agree wholeheartedly with that. Yes, I saw a couple other hands. Yes, sir, right up here. David Rowe, I'm from a startup called Epigee LLC. Uh, thanks for the segmentation information that is fascinating in terms of how the different demographic strata behave differently in terms of, of the information. Um, is there a role for innovation? And if so, if you did generate potentially breakthrough innovation, how do you approach the food industry effectively? I have some thoughts on that. I mean, I, I think... You know, the innovations, I mean, let, let's go back to sweeteners like stevia or variations, the next generation of a uh, no-calorie or very low-calorie sweetener that, that happens to be natural. Uh, I think they have a very important role to where we're going. Again, I think we have a dichotomy in the way consumers are perceiving this. You have those amongst, let's say, the, the healthy weight cohort is also more like our well-beings I spoke of where they want everything pretty much correct, so that nothing artificial needs to show up there. However, I like the notion of even if it's not perfect, being applied across the rest of the cohorts, if there are ways to bring down calories among those groups. I, again, if the problem, as Bill alluded to, or actually you were very direct about it, it High rates of obesity are high risk. They lead to cancers and they lead to type 2 diabetes, et cetera. It's the problem we really need to wrestle with. Yes, we need to get everyone to eat healthier, no doubt about it. But when we try to do both of those together 100%, we're probably doomed to fail because we're going to come up short all the time. So I see a role for products that could help reduce calories and sugars, even if they're not perfect products, to be applied just to get the calorie level down, provided they yield a, a product that tastes good and is affordable. Yes, Roger. Hi, Roger Lau with the Grocery Manufacturers Association. Um, obviously, the word stealth got our attention because I think I'm the fourth person to ask a question about it. But knowing that the, the consumer demand for greater transparency uh, and information and the use of the word stealth, um, I'm, I'm, try, I'm trying for the last half hour to square those. Is it the idea that you want to provide the information in a transparent way, but not necessarily say less sugar mm -hmm. or, or those sorts of things? But how do you how do you square the stealth versus? Yeah. The I'll give you an example. It's a great it's a great question. I mean, for instance, uh, let's say you have a product that has um, stevia in it, so it it's sweetened and it has very low cal So the product started off at 300 calories, now it's 180 calories snack bar, let's just say that. All right, what manufacturers have found is if I plaster over the front of that product now with you know, low fat or no sugar or something like that, it creates a reflux reaction that it's going to taste horribly. All right, it doesn't mean you don't provide all that information. 
on the panels, you know, what's in it. You tell them what's in it, but you don't necessarily have to flag it because that's where you get in trouble by hyping the new news. I mean, manufacturers know this for years that you always want new news on your package. That's why I go back to Procter & Gamble on Tide. New, improved. This thing's been new, improved for 50 years every other week. All right, but there's a reason for that because they want to use that for messaging. In this case, though, don't tell them. You know, it's there. I mean, provide the information. Remember, our folks who are, in this case, healthy weight, but also the well-beings, hungry, insatiable for nutritional information. You have to provide it. And it's, as Tracy mentioned before, it's important for manufacturers to be transparent. Bluntly, consumers want these companies to be transparent now. They have to be transparent. So provide all the information. It's what you flag and what you highlight. Again, if it's a yogurt product that's lower in sugar, absolutely, because that audience wants to see those benefits. But when you get to these kind of products, you know, you just end up, you're over the line at that point. Yeah, I, yeah, I think just, I mean, so my message is you have to be completely transparent. So the way to help is choice and transparency. That, and it can't go, and products that we make, it can't go on the back of the label. The calories have to go on the front. Because that's the, people aren't going to turn it over. I mean, you never see people going, oh, I wonder what's in an M&M. They, they know that they're treating themselves. They know what they're eating. Put it on the front. And then they've got, that's the most transparent you, you can be. And, and then they can help use that. I mean, I know myself, when I treat myself, I, I do manage my calories. I wouldn't say I'm right in the healthy piece, but, you know, I, I'm very careful about what, what I have. And so, you know, it's easier. Make it easier for me to do that. Make it easier for me to manage my lifestyle. Put it on the front. Um, in restaurants, put it on the menu. Um, whatever it be, you know, be the most transparent you can be. So I think it's the message is slightly mi being misinterpreted. It's when we... People don't like to be told, you're bad, you need to do less of this. Right. They don't like to be told what to do. So you have to help them do it in a way that you're not preaching at them. When we say stealth, that's really what we mean. How do you, how do you help them without telling them they're bad? Because when you do that and you tell people what to do, it just doesn't work. All right, we have time for one more question. I think I saw a hand up. Yes, sir, right there. Hi, thanks so much. Um, so my name is Nate Stritzinger with the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. Um, so one thing I was kind of curious about was I really did like Tracy your comment that you know consumers are our bosses and they really do drive the products that you create. But I was also curious, um, like from your standpoint, is there the ability for you as a company to drive demand in a different way? So creating a brand new product, for example, that might be a little more health healthier in some way. Um, to drive that demand and create behavior change? And is there any way for you to work with the public health community to potentially do that? So, I mean, I'll give you a so We have a food business too, um, Uncle Ben's. Um, the best thing for consumers is to make their own food and eat it at home, have conversation. Like, the, like on the, this extreme, the best thing you can do is make it easier for people to eat at home and have conversations and whatever. Consumers are, though, we know, more on the go and, and snacking more. Um, and so it's important when they do snack that they have healthy snacking options. Then over here, you've got my products, which are treats. So one of the things that, that we have done and will continue to do is uh, we announced our partnership with Kind back at the end of last year. If you're going to snack, snack on something like a Kind bar. 
it's, a, it's the, the leader in healthy snacking. I mean, it's nuts, fruit. Um, it, you know, if you're going to snack, snack on something healthy. It's why the Convenience Channel are offering, you know, more fruit. And um, it's interesting when you talk to some of those chains that have been on the forefront, they haven't lost any sales at all by offering more options. So what's important for manufacturers is to offer more options to help people make the right choice. Um, and we do have a responsibility to do that, and we'll continue um, to do that, whether it be on the treat side, on the healthy snacking side, or on the food side. Um, and, and it is just very different consumer behavior. So understand your consumer, understand their behavior in your area, and do what you can to give them more options to enable them to be more healthy. Does that, does that make sense? All right, thank you for your questions. Please join me in thanking our esteemed panelists. <laughs>